Reading from Jonah chapter 1, verses 8 through 17. So the sailors said to Jonah, tell us, since you're the cause of this evil happening to us, what do you do and where are you from? Where is your country and of what people are you? He said to them, I am Hebrew. I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were terrified and said to him, what have you done? The men knew that Jonah was fleeing from the Lord because he had told them. They said to him, what will we do about you so that the sea will become calm around us? The sea was continuing to rage. He said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will become calm around you. I know this is my fault, but this great storm has come upon you. The men rode to reach dry land, but they couldn't manage it because the sea continued to rage against them. So they called on the Lord saying, Please, Lord, don't let us perish on account of this man's life, and don't blame us for innocent blood. You are the Lord. Whatever you want, you can do. Then they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased its raging. The men worshipped the Lord with a profound reverence. They offered a sacrifice to the Lord, and made solemn promises. Meanwhile, the Lord provided a great fish to swallow Jonah. Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. Thank you, Diane. So as I said before, we're starting this series in the book of Jonah, and I'm affectionately calling this uh, series, the same thing as I've titled this sermon, The Worst Missionary. Now, uh, I remember the first big mission trip I ever took overseas. It was to South Africa, actually the first time that I met uh, Sandile and Ab Abby Unquanazi, who have just recently become um, Brethren Global Partners in our movement for the, the Brethren Church in the last couple of years. Um, but I had done some service projects before in youth group, but this was the first thing that I felt like I could actually call mission trip. I was really doing, going a very far way away and doing something significant. About two weeks into the trip, though, I remember thinking, man, when do I start feeling like a missionary? When do I start feeling like a missionary? You hear all these inspiring stories about people who bring the gospel to foreign lands, but I couldn't shake the feeling that the things that we were doing while we were there felt very ordinary to me. Uh, we were helping with kids camps, but I'd done that at home. We were sharing testimonies. I'd done that at church to do too. We led worship. We visited some sick people to pray for them, did some service projects at people's homes. All of these things that I would have considered fairly ordinary parts of the Christian life. And that's when I learned, at least for me, that my defini definition of missionary maybe ought to change. That a missionary is really someone who's just being a Christian in a different location, right? We're just doing the things of the normal Christian life in a place that is foreign uh, to us. You're all called to ministry. A missionary just does that ministry in a location that's different to them. It means being someone shaped by the good news of God's kingdom with eyes to see and ears to hear 
what God is saying to, uh, to and for the people that we encounter in our community. So even we can even be missionaries here in our own context if, if we know that God is up to something and if we are uh, open to what God is doing and, and how to join him in that. Uh, so as I said this morning, we're starting this uh, series about one of the very first missionaries, perhaps because it hadn't been done much before, uh, and also one of the worst missionaries, which I'm talking about, Jonah. So prior to Jonah, there had been some great leaders, who uh, great faith leaders that went on journeys. Abraham followed God's lead to uh, a different area, different territory. Moses led his people out of slavery in Egypt and into the promised land. Joshua led God's people to finally settle in that promised land of Israel. But none of them, as they were leading, really brought messages from God or about God to the other people they were experiencing. Um, all of these leaders, judges, priests, kings, prophets of Israel, were generally focused inward towards the people of God, Israel, helping them to be faithful to God's covenant with varying degrees of success, right? God had told Abraham, though, for the, from the beginning that his descendants, the people of Israel, would be a blessing to all nations, everyone. They understood that, though, mostly as an inward reality, that all the nations of the world would look to them as an example of how they ought to live. So because of that, it was maybe a fairly foreign concept to them that they would actually go outward to the other nations to say something to them about until Jonah. Now, Jonah is the first person that at least I can think of. You can feel free to correct me afterwards if I have made a major oversight. Uh, but the first person I, I can think of that uh, gives a message to a nation that is not his own. We're going to see how that goes for him. Hopefully, we'll learn something in the process, maybe of what not to do if he's the worst missionary here. So uh, already in chapter one, there's some crazy details here. Uh, let's see if I, I don't think I actually wrote those down. My wife told me I should make those a slide as she was looking over my manuscript, but I didn't do that. Uh, but God tells Jonah to go to one of Israel's enemies, uh, the Ninevites, to preach against it. Jonah does not that. He runs away. Instead, goes the opposite direction. Uh, everyone on the ship that he's with is, is panicked because there's a huge storm that God has sent. But meanwhile, Jonah is sleeping. And when they finally wake him up and gather from him that this whole thing is his fault, he decides that the best way to solve the problem is for him to be thrown overboard which they don't want to do, actually. They, they want to save his life in some way, uh, but they eventually do so reluctantly, and then they make sacrifices and vows to the Lord, uh, to Jonah's God afterwards because of what they have seen happen here. And then the fish, right? And that's where we end our, uh, uh, our passage today, the end of chapter one. Anyone forget how wild the story of Jonah is? There's so many interesting details that don't make it into our children's books oftentimes uh, when we talk about Jonah. Uh, but there's some really wild and profound things uh, that go on in this text. So I think for us this morning, as we reflect on this, there's some powerful insights that we can maybe gather from this. Uh, I've organized them under some questions that arose from the text for me. The first one being, why did Jonah run? Why did Jonah run? First, you know, the only thing that we really know about Jonah's life elsewhere in Scripture is from this brief mention in the book of 2 Kings 14.25, where it mentions uh, a Jonah, son of Amittai, uh, delivering 
this prophetic message to Jeroboam about restoring the border of Israel. And it says that although Jeroboam was a wicked king, the Lord showed mercy because of Israel's distress and because the Lord hadn't yet told them that he was going to blot out their name. And so uh, if we assume that this is the same Jonah, uh, you know, all we have is the, the similarity of name here. But if it is the same Jonah, he likely would have been a prophet held in pretty high esteem. The message that he had given came true. Um, it was a relatively positive message. And so they probably would have thought of him fairly well. But for whatever his pedigree was worth before, Jonah is now reluctant to speak God's words. He stands in complete contrast to the, uh, the prophet Isaiah, who witnessed God in the heavenly throne room, and he cries out, you remember, here I am, send me. Jonah says, here I am, I've booked a cruise. I'm going the other direction, right? Send someone else. There are times that we run from God because we are fearful of what will happen if we say yes, uh, that, that people might have a negative reaction that there might be some sort of punishment or, or, um, uh, or negative consequence for us in that. But that's not actually why Jonah runs. We find out later, I'm going to spoil the ending a little bit, in, in chapter 4, we learn that Jonah actually fled because he feared not God's wrath or the wrath of others, but God's mercy for Nineveh. God's mercy. As a prophet... Jonah knew that the only reason that God would give a message of judgment to a group of people, not just about them, is that there would be an opportunity for repentance and mercy to be shared. God speaks and tells these kind of things so that we can change our ways. There's judgment coming because of wickedness and evil, and so straighten up. Stop being this way. If you do so, there may be mercy. Jonah knows that that could happen, and he doesn't want that for Nineveh. Jonah wants them to crash and burn. Better to just leave them as is, because if God's judgment's coming, just let that happen. Let it all play out. Nineveh is, and why does Jonah want that, right? Nineveh is the capital of Assyria, and Assyria is one of Israel's enemies. It's the greatest empire uh, and ever-looming threat to Israel that they are experiencing at the time. So God's mercy to Nineveh would mean that their enemy wouldn't be destroyed. And all of the Israelites want Nineveh to be destroyed. So Jonah seems to be grappling here with a few things. One, maybe his personal prejudice for the Ninevites and these pagan enemies, but also possibly this very real threat posed to him and his people if his mission would prove successful. He could be labeled as unpatriotic at best or, or a traitor. At worst, worse. Unfortunately, this may be something that we can relate to. Right? Sometimes we run from God because of a fear, God's judgment or the judgment of other people. But other times we do fear his mercy. Most of us wouldn't admit to that because that sounds awful. Right? We'd like to say that we're welcoming of all people, that as Christians, we love everyone and want everyone to come into our doors to experience God's love. But if that were true, then we'd probably be spending a lot more time with people who are very different from us and share good news with them, helping them to come to know God's love. Talking about disagreements where they arise in a, a loving way, 
but there's something gut level within ourselves that can cause us to seek out people who look and act like us because it's a lot more comfortable to do that. We feel immediately uncomfortable around people who are just substantially different from us, whether it's because of clothing style, class difference, skin color, nationality, cultural background, sexual orientation. Uh, we can just feel uncomfortable for whatever reason, because we're like, I'm not sure if this difference is going to chafe in the conversation, if I can navigate the difference in a way that makes sense, whether it's prejudice or just that feeling of, I don't know about these people. And we can continue to feel comfortable even when they confess Christ. It's a really fascinating thing. Now, maybe you remember the, uh, the parable of the prodigal son as well, right? The sin of greed that caused the son to both demand his inheritance uh, impatiently and then squander it on meaningless things. But that son at last overcame his fear enough to humble himself before his father, asked to return as a servant. And as a result of his humility, he found that his father actually welcomed him back as a son. But it was the older brother who ultimately found himself outside of the party that was thrown afterwards. He just couldn't stand the fact that his father was celebrating so much, showing this over-the-top mercy on his younger brother. In Luke 15, uh, 28, do I have this slide up? I don't. Sorry, guys. It was a scramble getting ready for camp this week, so I didn't get it. But in Luke 15, I'll just read it to, to you for, you for us. In Luke 15, uh, it says, The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him, the older brother. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. You never gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But with the son of yours who has squandered your property uh, with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. You can almost hear the disappointment in the father's voice as he responds, Son, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. You had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost. He's found. The older brother was mad because of the father's mercy. So he distanced himself from the father. Jonah is so scared of even the possibility that God might show mercy to the Ninevites. He preemptively runs from God. There's not even anything that's happened yet, right? He just imagines that it could happen. And so he runs the other way. But here's my application question for us. Are we ever distancing ourselves from God? Because we have no interest in being with those whom God wants to reach. Do we ever distance ourselves from God because we just can't stand the idea that this person or these people might actually be a part of family? Maybe you have a trigger it just sets you off even when you see it. And maybe it's just even like the kind of identity politics that we can play at different times. Maybe you see a, a pride flag that someone's just displaying. Or maybe you see a MAGA hat. Uh, or any of those things that we can use to, to claim an ideology for things. It doesn't really matter what the ideology or identity marker is that you're reacting to. Underneath it is a beloved child of God. A bearer of God's image. 
a, a person that the father desperately wants to reconcile. The book of Jonah is a reminder for us that the people we write off as hopeless cases can sometimes be closer to God than we are ourselves. When we distance ourselves from them and run so hard away from them that we are, in fact, running away from God and his heart lost. We can see this also in, in glaring contrast, in the glaring contrast that we see between Jonah and the pagan sailors. Why are the pagans so faithful in this chapter? Although they don't know the one true God, at every point of the narrative, they prove themselves to be more righteous, more compassionate, more reverent even than God's own prophet, Jonah. I think this is a reminder for us that being saved and chosen by God does not always equate to godly character. And failing to claim Jesus as Lord does not always mean that person is morally bankrupt. In fact, there are many atheists and non-Christians that are quite moral and good individuals. This can come down to the concept of common grace. The reality that God has gifted all creation with the common understanding of what's true and beautiful and good. And even before a person has accepted Christ and really experienced the fullness of God's power and regeneration in us through the Spirit, that they can still know something of God's goodness because his fingerprints are in the world all around us. And this is a gift to us because it, it allows us to not be completely crushed by the weight of sin in a broken world because there's already grace that is helping to bring goodness in our world. God gives this gift of common grace for the common good. perfect example of this is Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan. Jesus tells another story of a man who was beaten and robbed and left for dead on the side of the road. And the religious folks who should have known best uh, to help him ended up passing him by. And it was a Samaritan who found the wounded man and tended to him, brought him to an innkeeper, and did everything he could to make sure that this man was cared for. Now, there were lots of reasons that the Jews and the Samaritans shared animosity one notable thing is that the Samaritans blended their worship of Yahweh with idolatry. They had false beliefs, false worship. But Jesus shows here in the parable that even though someone might have faulty beliefs about God, we still might have quite a bit that we can learn from them, for example. First, we can and should learn from the wisdom and example of non-believers. Obviously, that requires some discernment, but rubbing shoulders with people of a different faith backgrounds or no faith backgrounds while being immersed in Scripture and a deep relationship with Christ, it could open up our eyes to truths that we had never even noticed before. Muslims put many Christians to shame in their faithfulness of regular and disciplined prayer. Some atheists know their Bible better than Christians, and not just because they want to disprove it, but because they really want to give it a fair consideration before dismissing it out of hand. There's more, that's more generosity that, uh, in spirit that they share with Christians than most Christians give to any other belief system. And in Jesus, we've been given the greatest gift of God's fullest revelation. You know, we, we should use this then as even more motivation than others to pursue the fullness of wisdom and truth that God has created in the world. We can learn from everyone the discernment of the Spirit. The second thing also, though, is that we should 
recognize that non-Christians can and should judge us as Christians based on our commitment to the common good of all. When we behave with indifference or even callousness to the rights and the flourishing of others, we damage the gospel. The captain of Jonah's ship is right to reprimand Jonah when everyone else is praying to their own gods. And Jonah, the only one who worships the one true God, is sleeping. He says, hey, why aren't you pulling your weight? Do something. Don't just sleep. And Jonah knows that what is happening is all his fault. He knows it. And he cares zero percent about the collateral damage, the harm he is putting others through. As a side note here, um, I think it's interesting that some in the church can be quick to point out the sins of our culture as possible reasons for natural disasters or things that are happening, uh, calamities. But we rarely consider that it could be God's judgment for our own failures, for the churches. It's so common to be quick to judge others, yet to be slow to self-reflection repentance. But Jesus always instructs us to first take the plank out of our own eye before we call out the speck in someone else's. So we see in Jonah, it's only once he's been shaken awake and identified by this strange practice of casting of lots, kind of a, a random thing in here, that he finally acknowledges then his guilt. And he suggests that they sacrifice him to save themselves. His response here is sacrificial. It isn't that noble, though. It's the least thing that he can do to make things right. We've experienced grace to any degree possible. The baseline response of faithfulness ought to be for us a commitment to love others, to work for the common good, to take ownership of our own mistakes. The final question that I have to guide our things is why does Jesus point to Jonah? Why does Jesus point to Jonah this time? We read earlier in our service a passage from Matthew where the Pharisees asked Jesus for a sign. And he says, the only sign that will be given to you is the sign of Jonah. Now, one way of interpreting that uh, could be pretty easy. is just to say, well, Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days. Jesus is in the grave for three days. But the parallels are actually more striking than just that. There's a lot of really interesting things happen between them. Both Jonah and Jesus are given a mission. Jonah is to tell Nineveh to prepare for judgment. Jesus is to tell Israel to prepare for God's kingdom. Jonah ran. Jesus obeyed. Both of them slept on boats in the middle of storms. I mentioned that earlier. Jesus sleeps, or Jonah sleeps while the pagans worship, um, and Jesus sleeps while his um, disciples are struggling in the boat, and then they later worship him afterward. Now, a big difference is Jonah is the one who caused the storm. Jesus is the one who resolves the storm, his situation. Both of them give up their lives for others. Jonah is thrown overboard reluctantly by the sailors. Jesus is crucified, also reluctantly by Pilate. Both of them were in dark places for three days. Jonah in the belly of the fish, Jesus in the grave. Both of them escaped from those dark places, Jonah being vomited up and Jesus being resurrected. Both of them facilitated God's mercy to the lost. 
Jonah reluctantly, and yet he witnesses Nineveh repent. He sees God's, God's mercy shown on Gentiles. Jesus does it intentionally, and he witnesses his own people reject him, yet brings salvation to all people, Jews and Gentiles alike. When Jesus talks about the sign of Jonah, his point to the Pharisees seems to be about more than just the symbolism of three days in the fish. Because Jesus goes on to say this as well. He says, the men of Nineveh will stand at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And now something greater than Jonah is here. Jesus is getting at the same heart issues that threatened Jonah's ministry. If the Pharisees are unable to see past the letter of the law, to truly understand the spirit of God's instruction, God's desire to seek and save the lost, they will find themselves unable to truly see and receive God as he is, revealed to them right in front of their face in the person of Jesus. This is the sign of Jonah. That outsiders will come to repentance while those who should know God best will be blind to their own sin and their hearts hardened toward God and his mercy. Here's the interesting thing. God used Jonah despite his prejudice. In that, God also teaches us something very important through Jonah's abysmal example here. The reason that Jonah is such a bad missionary, such a bad example of sharing faith or or representing God to others is because Jonah fails to see the value of the people of Nineveh, the people whom God created and loves. He's the exact antithesis of Jesus, who never fails to see the value in his beloved children, even when they respond with bitter anger or callous indifference. Jonah was willing to give up his life to make up for his own mistakes. Jesus gave up his life to rescue his enemies for theirs, their mistakes, from their mistakes. That's the important lesson for us to take away today, that to live under Jesus' lordship means understanding his desire to rescue the lost, his eagerness to grant mercy to any who would respond to the humble heart. So may we see and love others as God sees and loves them. Otherwise, we may fail to see and love God altogether. May that ever be the case. Jesus, it is in you. It is in you that we see the Father. It is because of you, because of you that we know goodness, life, light truly is. You are the way, the truth, and the life. Sometimes your ways are surprising. Sometimes life with you forces us to encounter parts of our, our hearts, our spirits that are farther away from you than we realized, and it can be uncomfortable. It can grate against us, and we can want to run to any other comforting thoughts and ways of living prejudices that can soothe our egos, soothe our consciences, 
but aren't true. Lord, allow us to be uncomfortable, to know that we are safe in your grace and in your mercy. And Spirit, we invite you to do the work of healing us, of teaching us, of conforming into your image so that we might have your heart for the world. For all of the ways in which, which we look more like Jonah than you, we pray, Lord, help us. Reveal it to us. Allow us to surrender ourselves to you. Pursue you not reluctantly, but willingly. To gain your heart in the world. Greatest.